As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort in our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. And so by your spirit and your word, please show us Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1285 of many of our Pew Bibles. Hebrews is towards the end of the Bible between Philemon and the book of James. So Hebrews chapter 12. And we want to begin our reading at verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 29. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For if they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. I'm aware that this is not in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I didn't make a mistake. Um, But what we just covered in the Gospel of Mark made me think about uh, this passage. Uh, Last week in Mark's Gospel, we considered that interesting exchange between Jesus and one of the scribes regarding what is the most important commandment in the law. Uh, Jesus had explained that the most important command of the kingdom was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe had responded that Jesus was right, that this law of love was much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, to which we remember Jesus responded, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And it made me think of Hebrews 12 during that exchange, um, because what the scribe fails to understand is not just is the law of the kingdom, the law of love better than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, but that the new covenant that Jesus brings, the kingdom that is come in his coming into the world, the kingdom that he has inaugurated, that he will one day consummate in glory when he comes again, that whole kingdom is better uh, than the whole old covenant that existed. That's what the scribe had also failed to see, that Jesus is better than everything that has come before. Jesus is bringing a new covenant uh, before which the old covenant pales in comparison. Um, And so I thought we would take a brief detour into Hebrews 12 here before uh, resuming our study of the gospel of Mark to think further about the kingdom of God. Um, This was a letter that we're diving into written to predominantly Jewish Christians uh, who were becoming, in a certain sense, spiritually disoriented. Now, boys and girls, disoriented is a fancy word for lost. Um, it's, a, it's a fancy way of talking about how, that, how we feel when we get lost. One of the nice aspects of living in this day and age is it's much harder to get lost. Uh, you have a map in your phone, you have web- websites and apps that can help you. Um, but we know how disorienting that feeling is when we get lost. Uh, And one of the difficulties with getting lost is that you don't know where you are, and oftentimes when you're lost, you don't know where to go from where you are. Um, It's not uncommon to read about hikers that are inexperienced that go off into the wilderness and they are following a trail, and then they lose the trail and they wander off the trail, and then having wandered off the trail, they don't know where to go, and they continue to wander further off, um, and sometimes it even ends in tragedy. But when you don't know where to go, then you're lost and you don't know where you should go from where you are. And there's always a risk that you take a step in the wrong direction and you keep getting further and further lost. That can happen physically uh, when you're hiking or in the wilderness. That can happen spiritually. Um, If you lose a sense of where you are spiritually, uh, there's a temptation to take a step in the wrong direction. Uh, to head a direction that you should not go. And that's what was happening to these Hebrew Christians. They were becoming spiritually disoriented. They'd forgotten where they were, and forgetting where they were, they were beginning to contemplate taking a step that would have been in the wrong direction. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is really doing, talking to people who become spiritually disoriented, reminding them where they are and where they ought to go. One of the problems for these Jewish Christians is that getting spiritually disoriented, they're thinking about going back to Judaism. They're thinking that maybe life was better there. Maybe religion was uh, more, less, less something that you had to contemplate by faith and something more that you could see. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to press on them. You think that because you've become spiritually disoriented. If you think that that's a step in the right direction to go back, you need to reconsider that. And one of the great messages of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Uh, Jesus is better than everything that came before. Everything in that old covenant was all types and shadows pointing forward to Jesus. And so to reorient these Christians, the writer of Hebrews wants to say, you need to remember where you are. And knowing where you are, then you need to remember where you go from here. Um, And one, one of the things that he does that to do that, to help them, is to remind them of ancient history um, and then to talk to them about their present reality 
and then to give them that urgent responsibility of what they must do. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. Ancient history, the present reality, and the urgent responsibility that flows from that. Um, The ancient history is really laid out in verses 18 through 21. Uh, The author is going to set up a contrast between the old covenant at Sinai and the new covenant. Um, And although this mountain here is never mentioned by name, uh, that's why I went on to read the end of Exodus 20 after the Ten Commandments to remind us that this mountain that that the author is talking about here, starting at verse 18, is Mount Sinai, where the law was given. Uh, That's the picture that he's giving to us of what that scene was like um, at the mountain. And he talks about the fundamental realities of the covenant that was made at Sinai uh, to set up a contrast between Mount Zion, a totally different kind of mountain. So what were the fundamental realities about Sinai that the author of Hebrews wants to press home on these Christians? Well, the first fundamental he talks about is that that was a mountain that could be touched. That was a mountain that could be touched. It was a physical place. It was a tangible reality. And everything that happened there spoke of the physical reality of that mountain. Um, Everything that happened there appealed to their physical senses. The things that are described here would have appealed to all the senses of the people of God. There was a burning fire. You could feel the heat. You could smell the smoke. There was deep darkness and gloom that you could see along with the fire and the smoke. There was a whirlwind there that you could have seen and felt. There was a trumpet and a voice that you could have heard. And the way that trumpet and voice is described, you probably not only would have heard it, but would have felt the noise of it. Um, It's everything that could be physically, sensory. Everything about it was something that you could experience as creatures in this world. Um, It spoke of a very physical presence of a holy God there on the mountain. It was discernible by the senses that God was there. And everything their senses told them were terrifying. It was not a happy place to be. It was a terrifying place to be. If we're ever tempted to hear the Ten Commandments and think, boy, I would have loved to be there to hear the words spoken by God. Um, Everything about that experience tells us, no, you wouldn't. It would have been terrifying to be there. It was a terrifying experience. Everything Israel experienced there was terrifying, but particularly um, they begged that no further words be spoken to them because of not just the voice, but what the voice was telling them. Right? The, the whole experience was frightening, um, but was also frightening was the command that was given. Notice how the author of Hebrews talks about what was frightening about the situation. Um, And then he says at the end of verse 19, that made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Um, It was not just the voice of the experience itself, but it was what he said. Um, One person said, God's self-revelation set up a distance between him and the people. It created a barrier, striking terror into their minds and their hearts. That place was so holy that they were told, if, if, a, if an animal even touches the mountain, you have to kill it. And you have to kill it from a distance. You have to stone the animal. 
It's as if, you know, the animal has touched something untouchable, so it has to be killed, but you can't even get close to that animal when you kill it. You see how that just, everything about that is setting up a distance and saying it's just an unapproachable distance. That whole experience, the writer of Hebrews said, spoke of distance from God and a terror of God. That's what the old covenant really set up. And that probably was still being portrayed to the Hebrew Christians here in the temple service. This letter was likely written before the temple was destroyed. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that distance and that terror that they experienced at Sinai, this has been a religion that has continued to speak of distance and terror in these ceremonies of the Old Testament. They continue to testify to the holiness of God that is unapproachable, The holiness of God that sets up a barrier between himself and the sinfulness of the people. And that as long as that sin remains, they will remain at a distance. They will remain at a distance from their God. There will be veils put up. There will be barriers to coming into the presence of a holy God. There will be that distance. What the writer of Hebrews is doing for this people is saying... That's why you have to see that we are in such a better place than they were. We're in such a better place than they were. Because where they were is not where we are. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home. Where they were is not where we are. And that's such an important message for Christians to hear, isn't it? That that is not where we are anymore by God's grace? Because there can be a temptation for us too to get spiritually disoriented and to think that this is still where we stand with God. Do you ever think as a Christian that your sin is still separating you from God? Um, That you relate to God in this way that he's a terror to you? Terrifying because you know your sinfulness and you know his holiness And you worry that maybe he's unapproachable for you? We need to hear the writer of Hebrews say to us, that is not where you are. Christian, that is not where you are. Um, Where have you come by God's grace? You've come to a different mountain. If we're ever tempted to think that that's where we are, we become spiritually disoriented. And we need the gospel to reorient us to the glories of where we have come in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why all of these Hebrew Christians who might have been contemplating a return to the old covenant religion had to be reminded that it was imperfect and it was temporary and it was primarily legal and it could not do for them what they really needed was to have something that could overcome the distance and to put away the terror. It's something that only the grace of God and Jesus Christ our Lord can do. Um, Even the law had pointers that pointed forward to the gospel, but was always telling them to wait for someone who could put an end to the distance and put an end to the terror. Um, And the author of Hebrews wants them to understand that's where you've come, and only a fool would want to go back to that mountain. Only a fool would want to go back to that mountain, to that experience. Um, And to to be sure that they don't want to go back, he wants them to understand the present reality to which they've come. 
That's ancient history. What is the present reality for believers? Where have they come? And that's what God beautifully lays out for us in verses 22 through 24. Where are God's people now by faith? Where are we now by God's grace? We have not come to a physical, tangible mountain. We have come to a spiritual, glorious mountain. Right? That is not where you are. Where are you? You have come to Mount Zion, verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we've come by God's grace through faith. It's a different mountain entirely. Um, What is the scene that is painted for us here of this mountain, of what Mount Zion is like? It's no longer a picture of distance and terrifying separation anymore. Uh, What is the picture there? It's a picture of fellowship and joy, right? Close fellowship and celebration. It's a totally different kind of mountain, not one that can be touched, a spiritual mountain, and a mountain that celebrates close fellowship, right? Because who is there? It's God with all of his holy ones. It's God the judge of all is there. He's still the same God, but the scene has changed remarkably. Uh, Who are there on this mountain? Innumerable angels in festal gathering, right? Too many angels to count with their party clothes on, ready to go to a festal gathering, right? This is a a scene that celebrates joy, that speaks of a party, speaks of a happy occasion where God is there with his holy angels, with also the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven? That's us. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, We are those who are enrolled in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, living here and now. Uh, The people that God has brought together as his own people. It's the church on earth, the church we sometimes call the church militant. We've not yet come to glory. So the angels are there, the church on earth is there, and the church in heaven is there. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. As we said goodbye to Lucille Brockmuller yesterday, that's one of the things that we remembered, that she is there now with the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the church in heaven, uh, the church triumphant that's awaiting resurrection in glory. Um, They're all there. God, the judge of all, is there. Uh, But there's no picture of distance anymore. There's no picture of terror anymore. Uh, He's not alone there on the mountain in unapproachable holiness. He's surrounded there by his angels and by the church in heaven and by the church on earth. It's a gathering place. And what has changed so much to make this such a different place? Uh, Because of the last person who's there. Uh, Who is there in verse 24? To Jesus. Right, you knew that already. Boys and girls, you knew that all the answers are Jesus. Um, but the whole orientation of this mountain has been changed to close fellowship and celebration because Jesus is there. Because Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. Um, Mount Zion has a mediator. That's what the old covenant never really had. Moses, in a sense, was a mediator between God and men. He brought the word of God to men, but at the end of the day, he stood with men. He could not really mediate for them 
the way the Lord Jesus Christ can mediate for them. And I think that's driven home in this passage when it reminds us that Moses was standing with the people. Right? Even at Sinai, Moses was more with the people there. Um, he drives that home by saying in verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Right? The, the fundamental difference in this new covenant is this covenant has a mediator who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what the, the Apostle John is driving home about the glory of Christ who's come into the world at the beginning of his gospel when he says in, in John 1, 16 and 17, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's what Moses could not bring to God's people. He could bring the law. He couldn't bring truth and grace. Not the way that Jesus did. Not the way the mediator of the new covenant has done. In a way that can overcome the distance. And turn that distance and terror into close fellowship and celebration. And how has he done that? We're told in verse 24 he's done that by the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. By the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a, a well-known passage, so maybe we've heard those words a number of times. Uh, have you ever reflected on what is the word that Abel's blood spoke? Right, what is the word that Abel's blood spoke? We have to go all the way back to Genesis 4 to hear the word that Abel's blood spoke. It's after Cain killed his brother Abel, and God came to Cain asking where his brother was. Maybe you remember that as God came to him and said, where is Abel, your brother? Cain replied, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He had killed his brother. And he pretended that he didn't know where he was. And the Lord responded in Genesis 4.10 and said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What is the word that Abel's blood spoke to God? It spoke of sin and a need for vengeance, a need for justice. It was a blood that cried out, something has to be done about this. It called to God for justice. That's what that voice said to him. It spoke of sin and the need for justice. The justice that a righteous God demands. That's the word that Abel's blood spoke. Of sin and of justice demanded. Why is Christ's blood speaking a better word? Because it speaks not of sin and justice demanded. It speaks of salvation and justice satisfied. The Lord's blood does not call out for justice to be done. The Lord's blood calls out about justice that has been done. It speaks a word of salvation. It speaks a word of justice satisfied. And notice it's not just his outpoured blood that speaks that word. It's his sprinkled blood that speaks that word. Why is it important for the writer of Hebrews to tell these Hebrew Christians it's the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word? Because where for them was blood sprinkled in the old covenant? It was on the Day of Atonement. 
that, that high holy day when the blood of the atoning sacrifice would be carried in by the high priest into the holy of holies, the only day he was allowed to do that, to take the blood of the atoning sacrifice and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat, to cover over the sins of God's people. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. Jesus is that high priest who has gone in not to a temple made by hands, but has gone into the holy heavenly place to sprinkle the blood that finally takes away sin. To sprinkle the blood that actually puts an end to the distance and the separation between a holy God and a sinful people because it actually atones for our sins. That's the better word that that sprinkled blood speaks. Jesus poured out his blood on the cross and then sprinkled that blood to cover our sins. And once that blood is sprinkled and sins are covered, they're covered forever. He never needs to do that again. It has overcome the distance and the separation. It's ruined the fear that used to exist on account of our sins. We can think of Jesus being presented to us in this passage as the distance destroyer and the fear finisher. That's what he's done by his sacrifice on the cross. That's why all the distance is overcome by the death of the Son of God. His death tears the temple veil so that the way to the Holy of Holies is laid open. Right? His death tears down the wall of separation that divides Jew and Gentile. His death brings together every people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation from every generation of the world. It tears down those divisions. It makes one. It even unites those on earth in the church with those of the church of all ages, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ, by his death, has undone all the distance that separated us from God and his people. It's undone the distance between ages and generations and ethnic differences and everything else that we can think of that would separate people has been redeemed and restored by the work of Christ. And because he has undone the distance, there is no more reason for fear. Um, Perfect love casts out fear. Um, It's that wonderful, uh, fearless kind of testimony Paul can give in Galatians 2.20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we are tempted as Christians to be overcome by the fear and terror of the prospect of God's anger against our sins, we must remember where we are. The writer of Hebrews says, we are not at Mount Sinai experiencing the distance and the terror created by the law of God. We are at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, experiencing the fellowship and the joy that is created by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been made possible by our mediator, our high priest, our atoning sacrifice, our king, who has set us free from our sins. And that's when the writer of Hebrews then presses the urgent responsibility on those who recognize where they are um, so that they see where they must go from here. Um, Knowing where you are 
He says, you must not go back. You must not go from here. You've come to the mountain where a better word is spoken. The word of Christ's blood, the word of the gospel of grace. We must not refuse him who is speaking. Right? There's a warning that comes. That's the first urgent responsibility for the people hearing this word. If it was an urgent responsibility for them, it's an urgent responsibility for us. We need to be warned and to take this warning seriously. It's particularly directed to those who are tempted to apostasy, attempted to turn away from the word of God and from the gospel and to go back to something else. And it warns God's people that they should not do it. They should not refuse and reject him who warns from heaven. Um, That's what the urgent responsibility that's pressed on us in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Refuse here is the same word that appeared in verse 19 as beg not to hear. They refused. They begged not to hear. The writer of Hebrews is using the same word here, saying don't be like them. Don't refuse to hear this word. Don't refuse to hear this word. What happened to those who refused to hear his word when they came to Sinai? They died in the wilderness. They died in unbelief and in ingratitude. And now that a better word has been spoken, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you end up like them. Don't refuse the voice of the one who's speaking. Um, Because this is a better word. It's a better mountain. And if it was bad enough for them to refuse the word on that former mountain, how much worse would it be to refuse this word? This word that promises that close fellowship and celebration with God and with his people. How much worse would it be to refuse that word and to walk away from that? It's using that picture of terror and judgment at Sinai to remind us that that was a picture ultimately of the final judgment to come. When not only earth would be shaken as Mount Sinai was shaken, but when the heavens and the earth will be shaken. Verses 26 and 27, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. We need to be warned. We need to be warned not to refuse the voice of him who's speaking, because there's a time coming when all that is corrupted and defiled by sin will pass away, and all the things that do not endure will come to an end. It's a reminder that that old covenant was meant to come to an end. It was always meant to be temporary. That's what the people in Jesus' day didn't understand either. That scribe did not understand that old covenant was not meant to stand forever. It was meant to point to Christ, and when Christ came to fulfill the types and shadows, he came to put it to an end, to bring in that new glory that was always promised, that permanent glory, when a new temple glory would replace the old temple glory word that was prophesied through Haggai, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What is the latter glory he was speaking of? It's Christ. Christ himself, who is the temple and who builds his church into a temple of the living God. 
and a spiritual house that is built on Christ. This urgent responsibility is pressed on all of us who hear this word to be warned. And then there's also an urgent responsibility for us who, ha- for us who have come in faith to be grateful. Um, the warnings that are given in the book of Hebrews are always to be taken seriously. Um, there are serious warnings that come to God's people in the book of Hebrews, and they need to be taken seriously, particularly by those who are tempted to walk away, uh, to do other things. But there's always a danger that you hear the warning um, as if you're someone who's tempted to walk away when you're actually someone who's putting your faith and trust in Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews, even though we don't know who he was, we know he was a good pastor. And he, knew, he knows that he needed to warn the people that needed warning, but that there was a danger that the people who would hear that warning would actually be those who are clinging to Christ and who would be unsettled by the warning. And so he wants to comfort and encourage those who are clinging to Christ. And says to them, you have come to Mount Zion. You are here. You're not those who are tempted to turn away. You, are, you have come. You are converts to Mount Zion. And it's you who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a present reality. You are receiving it. And that kingdom is uh, the whole rule and reign of Christ, right, and all of its justice, peace, and glory, you're receiving that kingdom, and it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There are all kinds of other things that can be shaken in this world, things that won't endure. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so those who need to be warned need to be warned, but everyone else needs to be grateful. What is the proper response to receiving this kingdom? It's to be grateful. It's to be grateful. That's so important. As one person said, ingratitude lies at the very root of all sin and rebellion against God. It's ingratitude that lies at the root of all sin and rebellion against God. And so also gratitude is the very root of all Christian service to God. And what are we called to here? How are we called to show our gratitude to God? Well, it's right here at the end, worshiping him, offering our lives as living sacrifices of thanksgiving to him, which is our spiritual act of worship, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, to show our gratitude with reverence and awe. God is still God, right? God is still a consuming fire, we're told at the end of this passage. God is still God. He has not changed. He is still holy, holy, holy. And we revere who he is and we stand in awe that we are allowed to approach such a God through the way Jesus Christ has opened for us. God is still that God. But we've been changed. We've been changed by the work of our Savior to be able to draw near to this God with reverence and awe, with worship, knowing that we will not be consumed because Jesus was consumed in our place. He was consumed that we might be given access to the Father. We might, as Zachariah said, serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's why if we know we've come to Mount Zion by faith, there is nothing more to fear. That even when Jesus comes again in glory, 
It will not be against us in fiery judgment, but for us in glorious salvation. So believers who cling to our Lord Jesus Christ, remember you have not come to Sinai's law, but you have come to Zion's gospel, to the fellowship and rejoicing with your holy God through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the honor and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the way that you have opened to us, to you through your Son, that you sent him to save us from our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for your gospel and how it reminds us of where we have come and that it warns us not to depart from there, not to depart from Zion, from the city of the living God and from the heavenly Jerusalem, but to abide there and to go forward with you in faith and gratitude for all you've done. Help us all this morning to hear that voice that's speaking to us, that we would not refuse him who speaks and would not go our own way, which is a sure way to death and destruction, but would follow him and find life in his name. Create in us faith by your spirit and help us to show our gratitude and faithful service to you, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.